If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, past the four Gospels and the book of Acts and the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, now to 2 Corinthians. We are headed into a new section in this book and our journey through it. Uh, chapters 8 and 9 go together in which Paul deals with the subject of generosity. Chapters uh, 10 through 13 will be Paul's uh, admonition and address to the church about false teachers. But we have been prepared for this place by the first seven chapters of this book in which we have seen Paul defend his ministry and seek reconciliation with the congregation. Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, there is indeed none like you. And we pray that you would open up your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, that we might know better, Lord, who you are and what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a danger for the pastor in preaching on money. But there is an equal danger ignoring the subject of money and giving. Jesus talked about money very often. In some statistics, it is the most or second most frequent topic that Jesus spoke about. Money is also mentioned throughout all of the Bible. But often, and the parables are a good example of this, money is used as an illustration of a larger point. Money is used to make a point about the kingdom of God, or faith, or grace, or even forgiveness. Now that is because our view and our use of money reveals our hearts and our priorities. And so here this morning, we are about to launch a new six-sermon series on generosity. 
But I have to tell you, there is no capital campaign forthcoming. There is not a fear of low giving because of a COVID pandemic. No, this is part of our usual practice. Verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. Paul here gives us two full chapters, chapters 8 and 9, on the subject of Christian generosity and giving. The subject was important to him. It is important to the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, it should be important to us as well. So let's learn then, in context of this letter, what Paul has to say about Christian generosity. And so this morning, I am feeling especially generous with you all. Because I have not three, not four, but five points for you this morning. And they are these. From this text, I would like us to see first the background for generosity. And then second, we will see the beginning of generosity. And then thirdly, we will see the context of generosity. And then fourthly, we will see how the Macedonians are disposed to generosity. And then finally, we will see a description of the generosity of the Macedonians. Background, beginning, context, disposed, and description. Let's begin then first with the background for generosity. Now, Paul does not just launch into this subject unprepared. As we will see, the background here is not a lack of support for Paul and the ministry monetarily in Corinth. There are no indications in this letter or in the previous one that Paul was complaining about the personal support that he received. We have no indication that the church in Corinth was in any kind of financial trouble. And so this, I think, is a bit surprising. Because isn't our typical view that the pastor talks about money when there is trouble? When there is desperation? When there is need? And so he uses any opportunity he can to bring up the subject of money and giving. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is also not turning to this subject in an abstract way. Now, we could understand if Paul thought that this was an important topic that needed to be taught to the Corinthians, if it was a part of a systematic theology he was giving. Not every doctrine, not every teaching needs to have an immediate practical application. But that also is not the case here. Paul is talking to us, writing to us about generosity, and this flows from the earlier portion of the letter. Paul had been concerned about restoring his relationship with the congregation in Corinth. He wanted to emphasize the importance of the new covenant ministry. And now that he has done that, he turns back to a subject that has been in the background, we learn from this chapter, for more than a year. The collection to be made for the churches in Judea and Jerusalem. Now, we learn something about the background 
of this matter. Those churches in Judea and Jerusalem were poor. From the very beginning of the church, they had struggled. If we think about this from the very first pages of Acts, what we have is a church being born out of the Jewish nation. A church of people embracing the Messiah and coming together to worship Him. And the result of this was them being cut off from their families, being cut off from polite society, being cut off from their business contacts. After all, they worshipped someone who was killed as a criminal by the Roman authorities. They worshipped someone who had been rejected and condemned by the Jewish leaders. And so, they were on their own, so to speak. We also know from the book of Acts that from the very first days, there were large numbers who were converted to the faith and became a part of the church. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached a sermon, more than 3,000 joined the church. And the church continued this rapid growth. And so what this meant was the church grew and was large, but that meant a greater burden to provide for these people. In Acts chapter 4, we read that the Christians actually went to the lengths of sharing all of their possessions together in order to support the poorest among them. And then we know from history that in 46 AD, a great famine hit this area. A famine which would have made it even harder to recover from this poverty because most of the wealth in this area was concentrated in agriculture, specifically in the olive industry, a city that overlooked the Mount of Olives. But when a famine hits an area, agriculture does not come back in a week or two or three. No, you cannot restore trees to full health and full bloom in but one season. And so this would have been very difficult for the church to recover from. Now Paul had made it a part of his ministry to remember the poor. He tells us this in Galatians chapter 2. On his first visit to Jerusalem in 37, he would have seen the church in all of its poverty. And because of that, on his second visit to Jerusalem in 46, he brought a relief fund. For the church and its people. He had made a collection with Barnabas and they gathered up funds from Antioch and they brought them to the poor in Jerusalem. We read about this in Acts chapter 11. And then on his next visit in 51 AD, James, Peter, and John told him to remember the poor. And Paul said, of course, I'm eager to do that. He tells us that in Galatians 2. And so what we see here now is a theology of Christian giving and generosity that is rooted in an immediate need and a background. And our day and age is not that different from that day. There are still the poor among us. There are still brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling just to make ends meet and to eat and be housed. So, what does Paul do? If we are cynical, we know what to expect would come next. <clears throat> Paul, <coughs> Paul will launch into the Corinthians. 
He will tell them that they are failing him. That they're not supporting him the way they should be. He will give them all kinds of talk about how it is their duty to give. How they should be more generous. And that God has commanded that they are to give. In short, what we would expect is Paul to lead with the law. With commandment. And now let's be clear here. Paul would have every right to do this. The law does command generosity. The law does include how we are to treat our resources and our money. The Eighth Commandment, for example, is about more than a prohibition against stealing. We see this in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 74. The answer to what does the Eighth Commandment positively require is the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. That's a part of the Eighth Commandment, to provide for others. But this is not what Paul does. He doesn't begin with the law. He instead begins with an example. He does not begin with what the Corinthians should do. He begins with what the Macedonians did. He sets before them an example to follow. And so the path is one of encouragement and blessing, not of shame and manipulation. And the dominant theme that Paul strikes is one of grace. Now, we should not think that the main note that Paul strikes is praise for the Macedonians and how great they are. Do you see how he begins this passage? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He begins with God's grace. In our short passage, he talks about grace three times. In this chapter, he talks about grace seven times. And then he speaks of it even more in chapter 9. He doesn't start by striking us with scolding. Now, what happens when someone scolds you or tells you what you've done wrong? I know even the little kids among us know what happens next. You get defensive. You try to find a loophole of why you're not to blame. You try to find an excuse for what happened that isn't your fault. What child has not uttered the words, But mom, it's not my fault. But dad, you don't know why this happened. It is natural to us. <coughs> but instead of starting with scolding and having us backpedal and be defensive... Paul says, let me tell you about grace. Now, that causes us to lean in, to want to hear, to want to know more. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to have more grace? We want to hear what Paul has to say. Now, why does Paul do this beyond getting our attention? Well, the entire teaching about generosity and giving is otherworldly. Paul's teaching, the Bible's teaching about generosity is otherworldly. 
It is not investment advice. Paul is not telling you that you should give to make yourself wealthier. Far too often, worldly investment advice is peddled as God's word. You need to give to my ministry. You need to give to the church because if you do, you'll be even wealthier. You'll get back way more than you give. And the reason you should give is so you can be wealthy. The Bible doesn't know anything of that. Paul's not talking about how you can become richer through giving. Leave that to the stock market and the Warren Buffetts of the world, the investment advice. Generosity is another matter entirely. It's also not about status seeking. Paul is not saying, look how great the Macedonians are. Don't you want to be like them? Don't you want to be honored and be well thought of? Don't you want me, Corinthians, to go around telling everyone how great you are also? No. It's about the manifestation of the grace of God. The focus is on God. God is the one who initiates the generosity, not the Macedonians. He is the one who is giving. And that has always been Paul's theology. When Paul wrote the first letter to this church in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What Paul is telling the Corinthians and you and me is that everything we have comes from God. The only reason we are even able to be generous is because God has already been generous in his grace toward us. Now, when we think about money, giving, and generosity, we have to begin with God, not ourselves. That's because generosity begins with God. He is the generous one. His grace to us makes everything possible. And that means that bullying, manipulation, and guilt have no place in a theological discussion about giving and generosity. God does not need our resources. He is the one who provides and supplies resources to us. And so it is crucial for us to see that the beginning of generosity is God's grace. Next, we move on to the particulars of how this grace and generosity shows itself in Macedonia. And that's what Paul says. It's not that he wants us to know about grace in the abstract. This is a grace, he says, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God has provided this grace to the churches. And then Paul tells us a bit about the context of those churches, those congregations, those believers in Macedonia. Again, this is not theoretical. It is real. It is practical. He tells us about their lives. Now, Macedonia was one of two Roman provinces in what we now consider Greece. It was the northern portion of Greece. Macedonia was in the north, and Achaia was in the south. Corinth was, a, was located in Achaia, the southern province. And in the northern province, 
There were cities that you would be familiar with. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. These would be places in which the church had been established in Macedonia. Now, there may have been, at this time, other Macedonian churches, but we know at least that there were these three. And these churches had been through a great deal. From the very beginning, the Thessalonians, for example, had been afflicted. Paul tells us that they had a severe test of affliction. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning that the word of God came, from the very beginnings of their conversion, they were afflicted and persecuted. Now, affliction is a word we should be familiar with by now. Paul mentions it over and over again in this letter, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 6, and again in chapter 7. It, it is suffering, tribulation, anguish. You may recall it has the idea of being crushed or pressed down. Now, affliction should not be unexpected to the Christian. The Bible actually describes affliction as the norm for the Christian. I know that's hard for us in America to believe because we do not experience the affliction that our brothers and sisters do in places like China or India or Pakistan or Nigeria. But affliction is a part of being a believer. For example, in Acts chapter 14, it describes how Paul went strengthening the churches and encouraging them. And the way he encouraged the churches was he said, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not a few, not small, but many. Not inconveniences, but tribulations. And that we must enter the kingdom in this way. It's not optional. But at the same time, just as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1, while they had this affliction, this tribulation, they also had abounding joy. They had joy in the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us this. He says they had a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy. Now, if you're wondering what this looks like, how can I be afflicted and have an abundance of joy? The Macedonians help us. I think there's no better illustration than Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in Macedonia, in Philippi. And Luke tells us that after Paul and Silas were beaten with many blows, the text says, they were imprisoned. And they weren't just thrown into prison. So your idea of Paul in prison may be of him pacing back and forth, wondering what he's going to do, going to the Lord in prayer. No, Luke gives us an additional detail. He was put in prison in the stocks. His feet were put in stocks. What that meant was he couldn't lay down. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't even sit properly. These stocks were designed to make you as uncomfortable as possible. Now imagine that. And yet, what did he and Silas do? 
they sang hymns of praise to God. Now, we could understand it if Paul was able to be not the most miserable person in the world to be around in prison. I think sometimes we as believers, I know this is true of me, think we are doing a great feat if we're simply not abominably miserable all the time. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that great joy, abounding joy, is present in these believers. The abundance here is a particular word. There is a family of words that means abundance or overflowing. We'll see more of that later. But this particular word means beyond the expected amount. They are joyful beyond even what Paul might expect. That's what describes them. Persecuted and joyful. Can that be said of you? I know that times are tough. Many of you are discouraged by circumstances and events. But are you joyful? Is your hope in Jesus and not in this world? You can be joyful while you acknowledge the trials and challenges of life. The Bible tells us that that is what Christians do. They look beyond the world. They look beyond their circumstances to Jesus. And that is where they find joy. Now, there's not only a religious or a spiritual context to the lives of the Macedonians. There's also an economic context that they live in. They were very poor. Paul tells us they had extreme poverty. Have you ever heard of extreme poverty? You know, the kind of poverty that makes you say, I'm so poor, I can't pay attention. We are so poor that when you come through our front door, you're in our backyard. We were so poor that we ate cereal with a fork to save milk. That kind of poverty, abject, complete, and utter poverty. In America, we can't really understand this because to us, poverty means a lower level of cable TV. A cell phone that maybe isn't the latest smartphone. Food that we can eat, but is maybe not what we would prefer. But the Macedonians were in extreme poverty, Paul says. The word here for extreme is a word that means deep down, depth poverty. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 5 when he tells the disciples to go out to the deep to catch fish. This is the kind of poverty that's not up to your feet. It's not up to your knees. It's not up to your waist. It's over your head poverty. It's the same word that is used in Romans chapter 8 verse 39 that describes the greatest depths that cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, what was the cause of their poverty? Well, Macedonia had been other people's battlegrounds for decades. Now, imagine that. It's bad enough if your country, your place of living, is involved in a war. But imagine if other people brought their war to you and fought it over and over again. 
They didn't want to burn down their houses, they'd burn down yours. They didn't want to ruin their crops, they'd ruin yours. And this happened decade after decade. In the 40s BC, Caesar and Pompey fought battles there for rule over Rome. And then later, after the death of Julius Caesar by assassination, the triumvirs and Brutus and Cassius fought for control of Rome there again. And then just a few years later, Augustus and Antony fought another war in the same place for again control of Rome. But it wasn't just the Romans that vacationed with war there. There was an eastern king called Mithridates, and he fought one of his generals for control of his kingdom. Guess where? In Macedonia. Over and over again, this was happening. And then in addition, you have famine and storms that devastate the area. Just think about in our world, with all of our technologies and the way to move resources across the globe, how long it takes to recover from a disaster. There are still people today recovering from Harvey. There will be people recovering in Lake Charles for the rest of this decade. Now imagine you live in a world with little resources and no ability to transfer them. And as soon as you scrape together some resources, another war comes through and ruins it again. This was the world that they were living in. That was their context. But context is not determinative. Paul shows us something remarkable. He describes contrasts in the Macedonians, unexpected opposites. Although they were under affliction, they had great joy. And although they had poverty, he tells us they abounded in generosity. He says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Macedonians' generosity was not bounded by their circumstances. That is how we tend to think in our world. We tend to think that our generosity is limited by our resources and our circumstances. I'll give you one example. A few years ago, the tax code was reformed and it changed the way that deductions were given. And many charitable organizations and even churches were fearful that giving would dry up. Because you see, the way to make the most of your charitable deduction to get the best tax treatment would be to give nothing in the first year and then double in the second year and then nothing in the third year and double in the second year. And what these organizations and these churches were thinking was that giving and generosity was keyed to tax benefits, to money, to riches, to personal gain. Paul says we're not to think like that. Paul is purposefully giving us this example so that we do not think about generosity in that way. That's the way that the world thinks. And so he says that in the midst of their circumstances, their disposition was to be generous. And he says it quite starkly. He says they overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Now, this word overflowed is from the same word family that we saw abundance of joy, an abundance of joy. But here it means something that is beyond what is expected. In a sense, their generosity was irrational. 
It didn't make sense. It didn't follow. Now, the gospel narratives give us an, a feeling for this overwhelming nature. Whenever Jesus fed the crowds, whether it was 5,000 or 7,000 or however many, there was always an amount that was left over. There was an abundance. And whatever, however many baskets they gathered up of bread or of fishes, there was left over. That's the same word here. They have more generosity than they know what to do with. It goes beyond their means. They had a material lack. They were in deep poverty, Paul tells us. And yet their hearts were such that they overflowed with generosity. Brothers and sisters, generosity is not measured by resources. It comes from the heart. Think about the story of the widow in Mark 12. As people came giving, throwing their huge coins, clanging in the pot, Jesus tells us that they gave out of their abundance. But she gave out of everything that she had to live on. That's the way we are to think about generosity. Not just when it's easy for us. Not just when it's capable. Not just when it's comfortable. But when our hearts overflow with generosity. Now Paul points this out by showing what it is that actually overflowed. What overflowed was a wealth of generosity. Now we see one thing that's interesting in the grammar. Do you see our translation says, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, the preposition in here is actually the Greek preposition for into. Not that this is a bad translation. But it is directional. It is purposeful. The King James Version captures this so well with a word we never use anymore. The word unto. Unto can mean to a certain place, into a certain place, or it can mean for a purpose. That's what Paul is saying here. Their abundance, their overflowing, made its way into a wealth of generosity. So what is this wealth? Is Paul saying that they named it and claimed it? That the Macedonians said, we want to give and God's going to give us to give, and that God dropped a million drachmas on everybody? No. That's not what Paul says. Paul's not saying that all you have to do is get the right attitude. And the right mindset. And God will make you wealthy. You see, wealth here doesn't refer to their bank accounts. It means an abundance. It's something in plentiful supply. Now, usually it refers to money when we talk about wealth. But it's actually short for a wealth of money. Here, it's not about money. The abundance is actually of generosity. They had a wealth of generosity. Paul's saying nothing here about God making them rich. Remember, they are still deeply poor. They didn't bump up to middle class so that they could give more. He's not talking about their hands. He's talking about their hearts. The issue is the heart. It's not their resources, their abilities. And this should not surprise us because it is the supernatural grace of God. That brings this about. Not their bank balance. Do you see how the Bible speaks about generosity and giving? 
It's not about amounts or resources. It's about the heart. It's about the work of grace that God does in your heart through generosity. Generosity is a means to an end. And the end is for you to be blessed by God's grace. So what was the result? What came of their disposition for giving? Well, we see this in verses 3 through 5, in which Paul gives us a description of their generosity. Verses 3 through 5 are actually one long sentence in which Paul tells us that they gave. Now, he holds us in suspense somewhat in the original. We don't see the verb gave until actually verb five, verse 5. Now, in your translation, in order to help us, we see gave inserted in verse 3. And of course, it's implied, and that's a good translation. It describes how they give. All of these verses are describing how they give. And so the first thing that Paul tells us is that they gave according to their means. Now this according to is a preposition that means in conformity to or corresponding to something. It means it was in their power. It was in their capability, within their ability. What this means is they gave according to what they were able. They did not give less. They didn't hold anything back. Now, for example, in the United States, typical charitable giving by household is about 3% of income. Not wealth. Income. Now, I'm glad for that, but that doesn't seem to me to match up to our ability. I imagine that most American households spend more than 3% on Starbucks, Hulu, and Netflix. It's not a large amount. But wait, there's more. Paul tells us not only did they give according to their ability, he says they gave beyond their means. Now what does that mean? How could they give beyond what they had? Is Paul saying that they took out loans in order to give? No. What he's saying is, in a very serious way, he says, I testify to this. I'm giving legal testimony. It's the same word that we get the word martyr from. I testify to this. He says they gave beyond their ability. It means that they were willing to sacrifice to give. They were willing to sacrifice personal expenses. They had self-imposed poverty. Now, what would that look like? Perhaps when Mrs. Alexander went to the meat market to go buy meat for the week, Mr. Alexander said to her, you know, don't buy the top cut this week. We can take a little bit less of a cut. You can season it. We'll marinate it a little bit. It'll be not as juicy. It won't be as wonderful. But we'll eat and it'll be good. And we're blessed. And we'll take the difference and send it to Jerusalem. Now, what could that look like here? Well, for you and me, nowadays in Kroger, that might look like $2.50 or $4. And our attitude often is, well, does $2.50 really help at all? I mean, it's not really going to do much for rural poverty or to rebuild Lake Charles. I'd like a little bit nicer meat. But you see, their attitude was, anything that I can give, I want to give. Not because I know it's going to make a monumental difference, but because 
That's where my heart is. They might have put off buying more expensive brand of clothing. They might have denied themselves things that they would have easily and rightly been able to purchase just so that they could give beyond their means. They were being like Jesus, who self-imposed poverty made them and us rich. Do you look for opportunities to give beyond your ability? They also gave freely, Paul tells us, not coerced in any way. They gave not only beyond their means, they gave of their own accord. And this word means that they self-chose to give this. They did not get a prayer card from Paul with suggested donation on it so that they could fill in. They gave of their own accord. It was their own idea to give what they gave. It was voluntary. It was spontaneous. No one had to twist their arm. No one had to put them under a guilt trip. As a matter of fact, they begged not to be denied the privilege of giving. In fact, they were the ones who approached Paul about giving. You could imagine that Paul would not have been quick to go to them knowing their poverty. He would not have wanted to put this burden upon them to tell them that they needed to give. No, instead, what they did was they went to Paul and they said, Paul, don't deny us this privilege of giving. You have to let us give, Paul. They literally begged. That's what the word is. They literally begged to give. Can you imagine that? They had to be stopped from giving. As you think about your own heart for generosity, your own giving, think about the way that the Macedonians gave. Are you generous according to your ability? Even beyond your ability? Do you give freely? Or must you be coerced or guilted? Do you long to be able to give? I have to tell you this now, and this is scary as a pastor. If you have to be coerced or guilted into giving, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your resources. He could provide for himself. As a matter of fact, everything you have, he's given to you. God doesn't want guilt and manipulation. He wants joy and generosity that overflows. Now, finally and briefly, they understood that they had already received blessings from the Lord. They knew that generosity begins with knowing that everything we have comes from God. Do you see this? They gave themselves first to the Lord. The very first thing of importance and in time was them giving themselves to the Lord. Their redemption. It all belongs to God. Now, if we really believed that, if we really believed that God would take care of us, then we would be freer in our giving. The greatest restraint on giving is the fear that God won't provide. Well, if I give this, what am I going to do if hard times hit? What will I do if I need this, these funds, or this home, or this car, or this vacation time? What will I do? You see, the Macedonians understood that God always is a good giver. God is always generous. And God never leaves his people to beg for bread. And so giving is grounded in an understanding of God's grace to us. 
And they wanted to be engaged in a fellowship with fellow believers. It's interesting here. Paul says that they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part. Now, this translation is fine, but it hides something. The word favor is actually the word for grace. And the word taking part is actually the word for fellowship. You may even know it, koinonia. What Paul is saying is they begged to have the grace of being in fellowship with fellow believers. And a way that they could do that, they couldn't all pack up and get on a boat and go to Jerusalem and help people out. They couldn't help with the olive harvest. But what they could do is they could give. Which not only meant that funds were going, that meant that when the funds were received, the saints in Jerusalem knew that they were loved and cared for and were part of the body of Christ. Fellowship and giving. Generosity does not begin with the pocketbook. It doesn't begin with the bank account. It doesn't even begin with the hand. It begins with the heart. And that is because it is about a work of grace that Jesus is doing in his people. Generosity is not about resources or even providing for the church. It is about Jesus making us more like him. He is the ultimate example of generosity. He became poor that we might become rich. We'll see that in some detail next week. But for now, remember that your generosity begins with the work of God. And it is evidence of the work of God in your life now. Let's pray.